Everyone seems to like Jesus today, but few want to talk about the real Jesus. As Kevin DeYoung points out in his little satire, I guess, of American Christianity, American religion, he says there's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's Therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians, and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrines, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. (laughs) Will the real Jesus please stand up? Everyone seems to want to co-opt Jesus today for their favorite cause or their idea of personal fulfillment. Quite frankly, I think in American Christianity we have lost sight of the heart of Christianity, the center, the the real essence of what it's all about. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And Christ's sacrifice is the real sacrifice. Jesus Christ died as our substitute on a cross to pay for our sins so that we could be right with God. Everything else is secondary at best. Jesus didn't come to make us happy, or wealthy, or fulfilled, or inspired. Jesus didn't come to help us win ball games or political battles. I mean, all of those things may have value, some more than others, of course. But they are not why Jesus came. Jesus came to die for our sins so that we could be right with God forever. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28, we find that Christ's sacrifice on the cross accomplishes three very important realities for us. And I I think the the whole message of Hebrews is so pertinent and so appropriate for our lives because it takes us back. It takes us back to the foundation of our faith, which is Christ crucified so that we can be right with God. 
Three things that he accomplished for us on the cross in these verses. First of all, Christ's sacrifice prepares our sanctuary. Hebrews 9, verse 24, 23, excuse me. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. He's talking about the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The tabernacle and all its utensils were copies. They were not the originals. The word copies means a sketch or a model that was used to teach a truth, a reality. So the tabernacle and all its utensils were sketches on earth of a heavenly reality. God was the artist and he designed this Old Testament sacrificial system of worship as an earthly sketch of heavenly doctrine, heavenly realities, heavenly truth, truths. And in verse 24, we see the word antitype used or representation to describe the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a, an antitype, a representation of a spiritual truth. And the word there takes us back to the Greek philosopher Plato, who wrote a very famous story, and probably many of you read it in classes I did in education classes. It's a very popular story today about how these people were in a dark cave, and the cave was the only reality they knew. And all they could see were the shadows on the cave walls from the sun that sort of peep through, but that's all they could see was the shadows. They couldn't turn around. They couldn't see anything else. And they thought, this is all reality. Until they went outside, came up out of the cave into the brilliant sunshine, and began to look at the universe. And that was the reality, not the shadows on the walls of the cave. Well, this is the word that's used. You see, The earthly stuff of the tabernacle, that's the shadows on the cave. The reality was heaven. That was the real world. The real world of worship is the heavenly sanctuary. This earthly sanctuary, he says, is the shadow or the representation of that heavenly reality. But this is all we know right now. The reality is there. As we studied last Sunday, the tabernacle and all its utensils then had to be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats in order for the people to meet with God. And verse 22 tells us the importance of the blood sacrifice for sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. So the blood sacrifice prepared the place where people met with God. The priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the tools, the utensils there in the tabernacle to cleanse the tabernacle as the place where people met with God. In the same way, our author then argues now in verse 23, the blood of Christ is the better sacrifice and that is necessary to cleanse to bring forgiveness, to cleanse sin. The heavenly sanctuary is cleansed or sanctified with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. 
Now, that raises a question for us. Why did heaven need to be cleansed at all? And a variety of explanations have been offered for that question. One of the most common is that Satan rebelled against God in heaven. And so heaven needed to be cleansed of Satan's sin of rebellion when God cast him to this earth. And so Jesus Christ and his blood had to cleanse heaven from the sinfulness of Satan. The problem is that in Hebrews 9, that's not anywhere in the thought process of the author. The emphasis of Hebrews 9 and 10 is all on human sinfulness, not Satan. So, think of it this way. The Old Testament tabernacle and its utensils had to be cleansed, not because those things were sinful. There was nothing inherently sinful about the wood and the cloth that made up the tabernacle, or the gold utensils in the tabernacle. There's nothing sinful about those things. It was because humans were sinful, and it was the place where sinful humans met God in worship. The blood of bulls prepared the way for sinful humans to worship God in this location. So too, the heavenly sanctuary had to be cleansed Not because there is anything inherently sinful in heaven, but because we are sinful, and this is the place where we will meet a holy God. God was preparing our sanctuary by paying for our sins. He was satisfying himself. Jesus went to heaven with the payment of our sins to satisfy a holy God so that we could enter that sanctuary and be right with him and worship him forever. In August 2003, New York City's Church of the Holy Cross was broken into twice. The first time a metal money box next to the votive candle rack was stolen. Three weeks later, vandals got away with something far more valuable. It was a statue of Christ. The thieves unbolted a four-foot-long, 200-pound plaster Jesus from a meditation area where it had been bolted, of course, to the wooden cross in that area of the church. But they left the cross on the wall. David St. James, a caretaker who helps maintain the church, was amazed that someone would try to take Jesus without also taking his cross. They just decided we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus, he said. We don't know why they took just him. Well, lots of people, I think, want to take Jesus without the cross today. That's a popular thing to do. Yet without the cross, we cannot enter the heavenly sanctuary to be in God's holy presence. The blood of Christ paid off God so that you can enter God's sanctuary. The cross is absolutely necessary for our salvation. You can't have Jesus without the cross. 
You can't be right with God apart from the cross. So secondly this morning, Christ's sacrifice annuls our sins. Verses 24 to 26. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ did not enter an earthly tabernacle. He entered heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And the word that appear that is used here is, is a great word to describe what Jesus does before God for us right now. The word means to appear in the sense of to give a report, an official report. As a matter of fact, it was used of giving an official report before authorities in a government or a legal setting. The word referred to a formal report about a judicial matter. It could mean the the presenting of evidence that would clear us of a guilty verdict in a legal court. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for you and me right now. Jesus right now appears in heaven before God himself to give an official report that presents the evidence that clears you and me of our guilt. What's the evidence? Well, it's surely not that I'm not sinful, right? He can't claim before God that that we don't sin, we all sin. What's the evidence that he presents in the, in the courtroom of God that clears us of our guilt? It's his blood. It's his cross work. The evidence is the blood of Christ that has paid for our sin. So he's paid it. Christ is right now then representing us before God in heaven explaining that our sins have been paid for by his blood. We are guilt free. We do not have to pay for those sins. We don't have to do penance. We don't have to do anything to earn our way to God. He's paid for it. We accept that payment. So Jesus, he says, is not like the Old Testament priests who had to, year after year after year, bring sacrifices, right? Blood sacrifices, of course, he says, it's, not, it's blood that is not their own. <laughs> it was the blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices. Year after year after year, they presented these sacrifices to God. Jesus paid for our sins with his own blood, And he did it once for all time. That's it. One time. He does not need to constantly go back and repeat the sacrifice for our sins. There is no perpetual sacrifice for sins. Christ did it once for all time. Now, once a month, we celebrate communion as an act of worship. 
And it's very important to understand what we are doing when we eat the bread and drink the cup. Because the idea of perpetual sacrifice for sin is a false concept. And this passage makes very clear that Jesus is not sacrificed perpetually for our sins. And I emphasize that because, as you probably know, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Holy Mass teaches that Jesus is perpetually sacrificed for our sins. Every time the Holy Mass is celebrated, Jesus is sacrificed again for our sins. But this passage says what? He doesn't have to do that over and over and over again. Jesus did it once for all time. Never again does he have to be sacrificed for sin. So when we celebrate communion here, we we remember his sacrifice. We remember the Lord's death on the cross. We remember his sacrifice for our sins. We do not re-sacrifice him. There is no perpetual sacrifice for sin. Once For all time, at the consummation of the ages, Jesus was sacrificed for our sins on the cross. Your sins, mine. The crucifixion of Christ was then the fulcrum of human history. All of human history was consummated in that sacrifice of Christ. All of human history was leading up to the cross. And all of human history after the cross looks back to the cross. This is the fulcrum. This is the focal point of all human history, the cross. Our lives in heaven are founded on the cross. And our lives today are lived in remembrance and on the basis of that cross. We can never get far away from the cross work of Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus was made manifest. And the word translated has been made manifest is another variant of that word appear in this passage. We saw it in verse 24, appear. Christ appears in heaven right now before God, representing us. And Christ appeared on earth on the cross. He was made manifest. It's on the cross, then, that we see who Jesus really is. He is our Savior. He revealed himself to us on the cross in order to, it says, put away or set aside our sins. The word put away or set aside means to annul or void the sins. It meant to cancel or repeal the sins. The word was used in the culture of that day to refer to a decree that was annulled or canceled by some authority. This was legal annulment. So Jesus was disclosed to us on the cross in order to legally annul our sins. He voided our sins on the cross. He repealed our sins. And we are now perfect forever because of the cross. And the word 
was used, same word was used back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, for the setting aside or the annulling of the Old Testament law, because that never could make us perfect, right? For the Son, or by the Son, who is perfect, and He is the only way we can be perfect forever. Because in Him, we become legally perfect forever before God. Our sins are canceled or annulled in heaven by the blood of Christ. All right, I probably shouldn't confess this here. But I like to play free cell on my computer. In fact, I'm a little addicted to the game, but please don't hold that against me. One element of that game that I particularly like is the undo key. Some might call it cheating, but, I, but I, when I get stuck and I can't win the game, what do you do? Now, I know some of you have played free cell, so you undo, right? You undo your action until you get back to where you can start again. You say, well, why don't you just start the game over? Well, because, you see, if I start the game over, then it counts against me in the statistics. (laughs) It counts as a loss. And I don't like losses. I want to win. So, what do I do? I undo until I get back to a point where I can do it again. And then if I get stuck, I undo until I can do it again, right? So, I always win. Exactly. I'm good. Well, Christ essentially used the undo key in heaven for you and me. He undid our sins as far as God holding them against us is concerned. Now, obviously, in terms of life, sins have consequences But in terms of our legal standing before God, he undid them. There's nothing there. It's gone. He undid our sins. We win in heaven. There's no loss. We are perfect forever in God's heavenly sanctuary. All our sins have been undone by the grace of Christ. And because of that, Christ's sacrifice ensures then our future. Verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And that's an ominous verse, isn't it? But it's true. Every human must die. And every human must face judgment. That's God's appointment for mankind. Several years ago, a businessman found out about an elderly widow who was unable to pay her rent and facing eviction from her apartment. Feeling bad for her, he went to some friends. He asked them if they would give some money, and he collected enough money to pay for two months of her rent. 
He went to the widow's house that week to deliver the money, to pay up her rent for a couple of months. He knew she was inside, but she wouldn't answer the door. He knocked, no answer, knocked four times. He just kept knocking, still no answer. She wouldn't come to the door. So finally, he left and went back to his office. But the next day, he saw her on the street. And so he went up to her, and he said, Ma'am, some friends of mine and I found out about your situation, and we wanted to help. We got enough money together to give you rent money for two months, and I came to your house to give it to you. But I knocked several times, and nobody answered. She took a little gasp of breath and put her hand to her face. She said, Oh, I thought you were the landlord coming to evict me. So I didn't come to the door. I think many of us look at Christ that way sometimes. Christ is coming back. But many are afraid to face him because they fear that he is coming to punish them. After all, what did we just read? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He points out that Christ has already died to carry those sins. He bears our sins in death once for all time, for you, for me, so that we do not have to face the judgment of God for their sin, those sins. He died once for all time so that although we certainly die physically, we never die spiritually and we never are judged for those sins. Why? Not because we don't deserve the judgment, but because he's already been judged for those sins. He's already paid for them. Christ, you see, is out to pardon, not punish us when he comes back for us. He has paid our debts on the cross already. He doesn't have to come back to do that again. And verse 28 goes on to tell us that Jesus is coming back, but this time his coming is apart from reference to sin. He paid for the sin once. He doesn't have to come back and pay for it again. And we don't have to pay for it. When he comes back, he comes back to those, we are told, who are expectantly awaiting our final, ultimate salvation. His appearing the second time for those of us who have placed our faith in him is for our salvation, not our judgment. Because he has paid for our judgment already. Isn't that a beautiful verse of God's grace for you and me? I want you to notice that there are three appearings in this chapter. Many others have pointed this out. There is a present appearing in verse 24. Christ now appears in heaven to represent us to God. That's what he's doing right now. He is presenting evidence to God that our sin is paid for. We are no longer held liable for that sin. Then in verse 26, the second time the word appearing is used, it is a past appearing. Christ appeared on earth to take away our sin when he died on the cross. And now in verse 28, we have a third appearing. We see his future appearing. Christ will appear again on earth to complete our salvation. We will finally be what he wants us to be. And we will finally enjoy the fullest of what he wants us to enjoy because we are finally perfected forever by his grace. 
So we who love the Lord look forward to his appearing. We don't worry. We don't fear it. We look forward to it. We live in anticipation of his coming. This is our great hope in life. Author Wendy Zoba tells a story of when their, their middle son, Ben, was, was quite young. He had heard more than one sermon about the importance of giving your life to Christ. And he, he was pretty spiritually in tune and uh, was sensitive about these kinds of things. So she and her husband had talked with him on a number of times about accepting Christ as his Savior, giving his life to God, but he resisted their invitations, and they couldn't quite understand why. But he, would, he, he wouldn't explain, he would just say that he wasn't ready. He resisted for quite some time, as a matter of fact, and it began to bother them. And then one morning, as they sat around the kitchen table eating breakfast, little Ben announced he was ready to give his life to Jesus. Well, that was good. But then he got up from the table and went upstairs without another word. Wendy and her husband looked at each other and followed him upstairs to his room. She said they thought probably that they'd see him maybe kneeling and praying or doing something like that. Instead, they found him folding his Star Wars pajamas into his Sesame Street suitcase. They said, Ben, what are you doing? He said, packing. Why? To go to heaven. And then they understood why he had been unwilling to respond. He thought that when he gave his life to Jesus, he had to go live with Jesus in heaven. And now he was ready. Well, you know what? (laughs) We ought to be ready too, right? Every day. That's the spirit, the attitude that you and I ought to have every single day of our lives. We should all live with that expectation. Jesus could come back this afternoon before the service is ending, right? For us. But I got plans this afternoon, tomorrow, this week. Those are more important, right? Really not. Really not. Nothing of the stuff of this life is as important as heaven. William Barclay wrote, The best way to prepare for the coming of Christ is never to forget the presence of Christ. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq War, and after his 300th mission... He was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together, fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, and then they took a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night, and his buddies dropped him off at his driveway just before, just before sunrise. And as he got out of the car and he looked at his house, there was a big banner that said, Welcome home, Dad. How did they know? No one had called. Even he and his buddies didn't know that they were being sent home until it happened. And then they had flown out immediately. No one had called. The crew hadn't said anything. Robbins relates, When I walked into the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy, and came running. 
hugged me. Susan, his wife, came running down the hall. She looked terrific, hair fixed, makeup on, crisp yellow dress. How did you know, he said. I didn't, she answered. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. We were ready every day. Father, teach us to be ready every day. Lord Jesus, come. Come when you want to come. If it's now, if it's this afternoon, it's this week, we don't know. But help us to live in the readiness of your coming for us. For we do not fear your coming. We know you have paid our price and that you come to take us home. In your name, amen.